This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about uh, the development and uh, current elections in the world's largest democracy, uh, the country of India. And we're very fortunate to have uh, with us my colleague and friend, uh, a leading historian uh, of India and teacher of Indian uh, history and politics, uh, Shumit Guha. Uh, welcome, Shumit. Thank you. Nice to have you here. Uh, before we turn to Shumit, uh, we have Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. Uh, what's the title of your poem, Zachary? Indian Soul. Indian soul, let's hear it. Underneath tall trees that sink into the hazy mist, in the dirt grass that seems to fill some of these streets like sandboxes, in colorful palaces, tombs to ancient kings, amongst the rivers that flow through the cities of the urban millions with long lines of traffic trying to cross over arched bridges, traffic that leans out of windows and shouts with the vibrancy of a thousand years, and it is a hopeful, yearning traffic that remembers the intricacies of the highways but lacks the constraints, the burdens of remembering the rules. And hidden above the rooftops on stone balconies among monuments and arcs to the people who pass around them each day, within the fibers that stretch through these great expanses of populist modernity, mixed with the music, the smell of the historic beginnings. Within these strings across the subcontinent beneath the rising of the sun is a part of me that I know well. It is a part of me that loves spicy food, talking loudly, a part of me that is the patchwork of a quilt sewn in dedication to diversity. A part of me that loves adventure through the depths of the intellectual expanse, political theory in the sauna of a restaurant. In India, there is a section of my soul, a piece of my future and of the future of us all. It is a pattern elucidated under these humid clouds that cover a scorching sun, reveals itself in the laughs among a babel of cousins along a million suburban yards across continents several thousand miles apart. And it is a full square meter of my soul that knows the way the birds sing in the jungle, the way the wind whistles along the river deltas in the winter mornings, and is the part of me which named me, thumbtacked me to the map of the human race under a thousand categories, but the same name, the same name through the mountains and the valleys, the stupas and the skyscrapers, the rivers and the deserts, and there is beneath my skin, my hair, my breath, some Indian soul that sings. Wow. That was very good. Thank you. Yeah, I love the babble of the cousins. We just had our cousins visiting from India, and I could feel their babbling. Uh, what is your poem about, Zachary? Um, my poem is really about uh, my own personal connection to India, but also how how closely tied our future and the future of India are. Yes, yes. So, uh, Shumit, on that note, um, we often think of uh, India and the United States having many uh, differences, but one similarity, of course, is uh, traditions of democracy. Uh, where do Indian traditions of democracy come from and how do we understand the evolution of democracy in India? Well, that's uh, not, an, uh, not an easy question to answer in few <laughs> words. Um, uh, partly, of course, it would mean, it would depend on what we mean by democracy. Of course. And um, India, at the so let's uh, narrow it down to speak in terms of electoral democracy the practice of having free and competitive elections right and representative government yes and and yes and uh, which decide yeah, the the sort of the government so that uh, uh that of course uh, ha is an idea that has um, sort of various kinds of roots in history but 
India was, of course, an, uh, the major colony of the British Empire, the largest in population, and in many ways very central to the British Empire in Asia and Africa. The jewel in the crown. Ah, uh, yeah. So that uh, so that was uh, so the British introduced a limited franchise in India um, during the later nineteenth century, essentially as a way of um, getting managing urban government, and also by spinning off a little bit of the taxation needed for the enlarged administration onto local authorities, which thereby also reaped the political political opprobrium of having to levy taxes. So that was when they first... But these were very limited elections with right. narrow franchises, um, overwhelmingly men of property, mm. and... Uh, with special provisions for people like uh, Europeans who had special, you know, who had whose votes counted for much more in sort of Indian settled Europeans and so on. But so the mechanic, the mechanics of it start in the 20th century colonial period, which ends in 1947 with India's independence. Huh. And from uh, around from the end of World War One, uh, the British begin introducing a wider electoral system in which uh, towards the end many millions of voters participate but still on restricted franchises typically by communities religious communities or special constituencies like business right. uh, european uh, etc and uh, not therefore on a universal franchise however some of the mechanics of contested elections are worked out in this period so that's um, that in a sense uh, as one part sure. of it. And the Indian nationalist movements from their beginnings um, adapt to the idea of contest and contestation for political authority. And I think that is actually the, the more important yes. part of the birth of democracy in India because it is perfectly possible to have uh, you know, mechanically functional elections the Soviet uh, Soviet Russia had them with very high sure. turnouts also, sure, but sure. Uh, with the results predetermined. Right. So, so the question is whether the participants take them seriously, and what happens between about World War One and World War Two in British India is that the participants, Indian politicians, begin actually contesting seriously, and what is perhaps more important, losing without. Uh, resort to sort of other means. Right. One of the tests of democracy is, yes. of course, do the losers stay in the game? Yes, exactly. So that's so that is. Um, but even the most the sort of largest participation election that the British held in 1945-46 uh, was a limited was by limited constituencies, and particularly it was demarcated by religious constituencies: Muslims, non-Muslims, Sikhs. Uh, Anglo-Indians and sure. so on, and restricted by property and other kind of qualifications for franchise. So that's, in a sense, uh, the beginnings of it. The thing is that the that election, however, resulted in a political impasse and the partition of the former British Empire in India into India and Pakistan. Right, right. And at that time, of course, we had East and West Pakistan, which and, and East Pakistan now being Bangladesh. Yes. Um, so many have claimed that the Congress Party, which for quite a long time was the largest party in India and the party that produced uh, most of the prime ministers, uh, the party of uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, Indira Gandhi, uh, that it was really a one-party state. Uh, is that a fair assessment of where India was until the prior last few decades? Uh, well, 
they, the Congress Party certainly won a majority in the central legislature. India is a India. The Indian Constitution is modelled on the British system rather than the American. Right, so it's a parliamentary so system. It's a parliamentary system, and whoever commands a majority of uh, the votes in Parliament or can secure a majority of the votes in Parliament on crucial uh, votes. Uh, is the head of the government and effectively the head of the executive. There's a ceremonial president, but um, there is not. Um, so it's rather different from the separation of powers that characterizes the United States and uh, countries that have followed the U.S. model. So the Congress party certainly secured a majority in the elections uh, at, the, at the federal level through until 1977, which is the first one in which they say they were sort of um, actually went out of power. Mm. But they frequently lost local cons- constituency I elections see. from nine, in, in individual constituencies from 1952 when the first I elections see. take place. And they lost control of a major state in the 1957 elections when the communists were elected in Kerala. Right. And oh, well, an alliance of parties led by the communist party was elected in Kerala, and it was the first sort of freely elected communist government anywhere in the world. So, um, so in that sense, it was one party, but it was a one-party government in which the, uh, the voters' choice counted. And what is interesting is that the Congress Party, until 1984, never secured 50% of the national vote cast. It was consequently its wins were always predicated upon the division of votes right. by the opposition amongst multiple contestants. I see. I see. So today, with uh, current elections in India, which we want to we we want to talk about, um, uh, how do we understand uh, the party structure? Because the the party that's in power now, of course, is not the Congress Party. It's the the BJP Party, which is a Hindu nationalist party. How do we understand uh, the the current party structure? Well, it's uh, it's uh, there are actually there have been since at least uh, since 1989 coalition governments in power at the federal center. So really, the BJP is leading a coalition. They secured a majority of seats, and this was something unprecedented in the federal legislature in the 2014 election. But um, they are still uh, they're st- they're, that was also at, as the head of a coalition. So there was a degree of pooling of votes. So currently, and at the same time, each of the states, which, and, you know, larger Indian states have the population of major countries. Sure. So, so, Some Indian cities are the populations of major countries. Oh, yes, yes, easily. But, uh, well, minor countries, but, uh, and if you don't count Switzerland or Belgium, but uh, it's... uh, Certainly. So, so for you know, a state like uh, West Bengal has nearly 100 million people. Right. Maharashtra has uh, also close on 100 million. Madhya so, Pradesh as well, I think. Yes, and Uttar Pradesh is the biggest, right. and that has, um, I think, over 200 million. So, anyways, so a lot of the state, a lot of the states have an independent political dynamic, and their elections are dominated by regional parties. I see. Who's uh, which have risen since the 1980s. And whose support to the federal government is often contingent on their own particular calculations in individual states. So, so really, you have a sort of right-leaning uh, coalition headed by the BJP, uh, right-leaning in the sense of being more strongly uh, religious in its mm. orientation and a more um, sort of... Um, 
left, I suppose, the opposite of right being left, but let's say a more centrist coalition around the Congress, which um, is marked by various alliances as well. So this is uh, how the the kind of Indian elections have been for at least the last 30 years. And uh, people who analyze polls often speak of the index of opposition unity hmm. as a key element right. in deciding outcomes. Right. Why, uh, Shamit, have we seen the rise uh, in the last few decades of more of these, uh, at least uh, superficially, religiously identifying uh, parties and groups? The Congress Party, of course, had claimed to be a secular party. Yes. Uh, is this is this part of a larger global phenomenon? Uh, what are the particular Indian characteristics to it? Well, the the Hindu right has had a long presence in Indian politics. It's um, it it's it had a precursor immediately after independence in the Bharatiya Jansangh. Right, and the assassination of uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Oh, that was even earlier. Okay. But um, the Bharatiya Jansangh was formed after that. Okay. In 1951, for the elections of 19, right. so it has had a, it's a, it's been a, an enduring strain, and the Congress was itself something. And the Congress actually began as as a gathering, as a large conference of Indian nationalist politicians, which gradually coalesced into a political organization under Gandhi's leadership around 1919, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I should have mentioned perhaps that one of the traditions that he in, enshrined was that they would have internal elections for all, by party members for all party posts. Consequently, people who are very important in their locality, you know, rajas and big landowners and uh, affluent lawyers and so forth, had to reconcile themselves to the fact that, uh, you know, these sort of commonplace uh, members, clerks and petty and small farmers and so forth could actually reject their offer of leadership, which I think was, again, a part of the psychological uh, training for a democratic process. But coming back, um, so the Congress contained also a Hindu wing, especially in the 1950s, and that was a part of the way in which the more extreme elements of the... Uh, similarly, it contained elements of uh, Muslim self-assertion, uh, but which were, however, rather muted after the you know the trauma of the separation of uh, India and Pakistan with cons- very considerable violence and bloodshed that accompanied it. But um, these elements were there. I think from the 1980s, what happens is that the that the left, the socialist left, loses credibility with the rapid unwinding of the Soviet system. Yes, and that I think is a worldwide phenomenon. Yes. There's a, and uh, at the same time, um, uh, there is a sort of a general rise of religious identification uh, worldwide. Um, there are a lot of forces, both in, you know, local to India. And otherwise, and as the Congress loses the specific identification of having the plan to build a socialistic pattern of society, at least in theory, uh, a sort of space opens up, a political space opens up for alternative forms of identity. There is also the rise of lower caste assertion. Yes. Uh, The Congress was very much, the Congress leadership was for many decades, while aspirationally egalitarian, 
in its uh, social composition, white collar and upper middle to upper middle class, and typically also upper caste. So there's a populist element to many yes. of these other parties. Yes, yes. well, the BJP has uh, drawn on a different kind of, I mean, you know, it, it unites the sort of Brahmanical uh, elements together with a kind of uh, uh, street religiosity, yes, right. which... Uh, which these sort of some of the upper elements would in fact find excessively and plebeian and vulgar. A frequent use of anti-Muslim rhetoric, even by yes. the prime minister himself. Yes. Yes, that has intense that intensifies in election um, in electoral election periods, and having an external enemy. Yes. Is um, but this has been specific to the 2014 and now the 2019 election campaigns. It was less pronounced in earlier. Time 1989-91, there was a strong agitation around a specific religious site, yes. the Babri Masjid right. in North India. Right, right. So we have a student question about caste. You mentioned caste. Uh, this this question is actually from uh, Aisha Hussein. Let's let's hear the question. What role does the caste system take in shaping Indian democracy? Do you think it weakens or strengthens democratic participation within the country? Very good question. Yes, that is um, uh, like most things about uh, you know South Asia or India. It's it's sort of it's complex. Well, <laughs> uh, the caste system, as you know, intrinsically in its in its classic form, it was undemocratic. It placed people into a hierarchy of um, a hierarchy of status and sometimes a hierarchy of occupation that they were supposed to pursue. The occupational part fell away at least a century or more ago, but the hierarchy of status persisted. And it also persisted in um, forms which were outlawed quite early on in the Indian, um, under the Indian Republic, such as the practice of untouchability, excluding people from uh, particular areas, um, excluding them from the use of common wells or water sources and so on. Uh, those might very occasionally now still occur in practice, but they are illegal and they can be pro and they can be and are prosecuted. As far as um, in, since the caste uh, caste as a sort of identity has in fact become more prominent in the same way perhaps as ethnicity has become more prominent in many parts of the world. In fact, I wrote a book, um, you know, in which I argued that this has been the, um, uh, that the shift towards social uh, classification as identity has superseded the role of the economic and the functional roles of caste as hierarchy. So now it's more like ethnic blocks competing, many ethnic blocks competing within a sort of polycentric um, And this plays to the party structure that you defined, yeah. yes. So, and a part of the political competition has been, especially for the lowest and most stigmatized castes, that they've been able to form blocks that have had mobilized, that have organized politically. And this is particularly true of a body. The most enduring of these has been the um, BSP, Bahujan yes. Samaj Party. Yes. And the Bahujan Samaj Party has been very much a party of a lower caste block, 
which has strategically allied itself with various other parties depending on what its leaders have perceived as their electoral and political interests. So the BSP in Uttar Pradesh, which is its most important base, has at one time allied itself with the BJP, with the Hindu right, and it has at another time allied itself with the uh, with the Congress. And in this election has actually allied itself with a middle caste uh, plus Muslim conglomerate known as the Samajwadi Party, with whom originally they were actually uh, in a, had a quite a hostile relationship because um, the immediate interaction of lower caste, the, the lowest castes in rural areas is often with the middle castes who are small landowners and farmers and often e- almost as poor, right. but consequently are in a, more, in a more, you know, sort of fiercer competition. It might be somewhat like the relationship of poor whites and blacks in the rural south. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting because these caste elements are, are change over time, but they endure in certain ways too. Uh, yes. Well, it's it's partly, but in, um, in the sense there is a massification. Yes. There used to be hundreds of castes. Yes. And now there's a massification. They are being consolidated into a block, which is important enough to be a voting block. Right, and then for, for educational institutions and other institutions, they're often referred to as the scheduled classes, right? And have particular, uh, yes. particular no. seats and, and privileges. Right, well, that arises from a provision in the 1951 Constitu- 1950 Constitution, which is that the names of particular communities were listed in a schedule of the Constitution, so these were the scheduled castes. Yes, yes. And similarly scheduled tribes. Zachary, you had a question. Yes, I was wondering how issues of economics and economic mismanagement play into the sort of uh, racial, eth- ethnic, and um, economic divides in the country. Do they do they supersede them, or are they put are they placed below those interests? Well, you know, it's um, the thing about voting is that it's an all or nothing choice. Yes. I mean, each voter, and though now the not none of the above has also become an option in Indian in the Indian uh, yes. ballot uh, polls. You can, though very few people actually do that. Right. But uh, it's an all or nothing choice. So the voter and the voter has multiple appeals. The individual voter has multiple appeals to his or her interests, loyalties, feelings, calculations. So it's uh, it's difficult to say what exactly. Uh, so, you know, it's um, serious economic mismanagement, like with really rapid inflation, uh, typically loses elections. It's not something you can overcome with some other kind of appeal. But uh, if there's been recent interreligious violence in a locality or constituency, that may actually swing the margin and elections are quite tightly you know it's a small marginal number of voters switching one way or the other decide or a terrorist attack from pakistan which recently occurred which might help uh the bjp in this election yes uh well in 2008 um i mean there's there have been uh, frankly there's been a sort of considerable history of terrorist attacks which don't at the national level seem to uh, affect uh, elections as such but um, the me- media penetration and social media penetration has increased enormously even in the five years since the 2014 yes. elections. Yes. So it's hard to say what exactly is registering.
Yes. So what are we seeing so far? Uh, Americans are not paying much attention right now, but but the largest democracy in the world has begun three weeks of elections where uh, more than uh, six, seven hundred million people will vote. Yes. Uh, almost three times as many as the number of people who vote in the United States. Um, so what, what do you see happening so far? Uh, it's hard to say because they, the first round of voting has occurred. In fact, the number of people who voted in this first round is approximately, is almost as many as voted in, uh, which, uh, almost as many as voted in the U.S. Uh, election of 2018, I think. Wow, wow. Uh, because, and I have the numbers here. So, there are over 142 million eligible voters, of whom about three-fifths to two-thirds have actually voted. Wow. So that is something of the order of 90 million people. Right. I mean, so 90 million votes have actually been cast. And, and this is only round one. This is round one for 91 seats. Wow. Uh, so it's uh, there will be another. And voter turnout has, um, it's been pretty high. The Some of the highest has been in the eastern regions. For example, West Bengal has had 81%. And... Um, um, the sort of Andhra, anyway, most places are above 60. Bihar is the low, is the outlier at the low end with 50%. And, and what do you see happening? What are, you, what are your expectations for this uh, election, which is crucially important for the, the future of South Asia and the world in many respects? Well, I don't know. It's, uh, it is not possible to. I have not been following it that closely in any way, even people whose profession it is to follow it right. and comment upon it. Uh, are not certain it's um, the kind of um, the print media's sort of analysts uh, and the um, the one kind of relatively independent study which is conducted by the study a center for the study of uh, developing societies and others and mm -hmm. has been for a number of decades it suggests that the ruling coalition will lose seats but uh, may still have enough to retain a majority in the federal legislature. Uh, however, that's uh, anyone's, um, you know, that's it's a sort of, it's a, it's a surmise. The other problem is that, you know, because you have single, you have um, over 500, 540 or so constituencies, individual constituencies, and uh, it's who gets a majority of the seats. Right. And consequently, having, you know, 100% of the votes in one constituency does not translate over to help your candidate in the next one. Right. This is a familiar phenomenon for Americans where it's not the total vote, it's where your votes yes, exactly. can come in. Yes. So we have a question from uh, Amanda Kilcrease, another student, uh, about the relationship between Indian and American democracy, which I think is a, is a good question for us to turn to. Uh, this is Amanda Kilcrease. What effect does democracy in America have on its formation in India, and both negatively and positively? And, and particularly, uh, Shumit, right now, when the United States is, is going through its own uh, difficulties with democracy now, what, what effect does that have in India and vice versa? Uh, I, I don't think, frankly, that the, the model of the U.S. Constitution is 
you know, self-consciously adopted by the Indian constitution writers in the in 1946 to 49 when they were drafting the mm-hmm. constitution. But um, they didn't follow its brevity, for example. <laughs> it is, the Indian constitution is one of the longest in the world. I have tried to read it and it's very difficult, yes. actually. <laughs> it is. It's written by a lot of lawyers and lawyers sitting in committees. Yes. So, but so the in, in form, the idea of having a constitution... Um, was something which was uh, definitely, you know, the first one is the American, is the United States Constitution, and certainly the first enduring one is the United States Constitution. So it's been something of a model. And uh, the very idea of, you know, constitution is technically the, the formative, the statement to constitute, to put together a political community. The idea of a contractual political community is something which, again, the United States was the first to do and followed shortly thereafter by France, which, however, had a whole succession of them, uh, you know, in in its couple of hundred years since. So as far as contemporary U.S. politics, um, I don't think it has very much of an effect insofar as there are there are there are common traits such as the rise of religiosity or the rise of identity politics I think that's merely that India and the United States both both reflect and contribute to a global trend but I don't think there's much that the United States directly mm. As and there used to be a time when the CIA and the kind yes. of hand of uh, the dark hand of American conspiracy was occasionally invoked by politicians, particularly Indira Gandhi in the 70s. Uh, but that has passed away. So really, the U.S. is not actually that important. So, so that might bring us then, I think, to the, the good question for us to close on. We always like to close on an optimistic note. It, it, it does seem to me, Shumi, that one of the possibilities of a direct U.S.-Indian uh, work together on democracy is among our young people. More than ever before, I see uh, so many of my students uh, in the U.S., have Indian origins like myself and Zachary and our family. Uh, and uh, so many uh, Indians uh, have spent time in the United States. Is there, or maybe the way to put this is, uh, are there things we can do to incur- encourage mutual learning and mutual, de- mutual democratic activism among these now more interconnected American and, and Indian communities? Uh, I think it's happening already. And I don't think it, uh, I would... Uh, I would avoid anything that has the suggestion of uh, the United States promoting something <laughs> yes. because it's typically counterproductive. Yes, <laughs> well so, said. So, so you know, and in any case, you know, so the sort of uh, media and the internet now are really global yes. Uh, yes. phenomena, and uh, even the phenomena of sort of you know trolling or fake um, mani- media manipulation yes. and yes. so forth. All of these technologies have traveled. So really, I don't think that there's much. Um, I mean that, you know, people of goodwill can uh, speak and um, interact and so forth. But I can't see that there's anything um, as such um, as such that uh, sure. more than what is already happening. Through our educational institutions yes. and yes. things of that sort. And exchanges and um, so on. The other, uh, the other positive note, actually, I would say is that, you know, there's a classic political text by the um, theorist Mansur Olson, who actually made a case uh, which, among other things, would argue against voting at all. Yeah. Which is uh, when you have, for example, you know, we have had 91 ele- uh, parliamentary seats decided in this last round of voting. About 90 million people voted. There's upwards of a million voters per constituency. A single vote 
can be considered as pointless. But if every single voter thought of his or her vote as pointless, then nobody would vote. Right, right. And yet, people do turn out and they've been turning out in increasing numbers. Yes. And so, this is what my friend Mukulika Banerjee of the London School of Economics has, in fact, argued is that there is a sort of cultural and affirmative and sort of performative aspect to the elections, which has encouraged and mobilized people in such large numbers to actually turn out to vote and in some cases to travel back home. Sure considerable distances in order to vote. Sure. So on the positive side, that aspect of the electoral process is clearly very valued amongst the Indian voters, whatever their individual choices yeah. in the elections may be. It, it's a great lesson for Americans uh, to see uh, how a society that is uh, so much larger and, so, and in many ways much poorer is able to bring more people out to vote uh, and the things that are done to make it possible for them to vote. Zachary, uh, do you find that, that this is inspiring for you? Is this a topic of conversation? Is, is the future of India connected to your conceptualization of the future of American democracy? Yeah, yeah, yes. I really do think that um, young people are, are engaged with India and have experienced it first, have experienced Indian culture and Indians firsthand just because uh, the American uh, communities that many of us grow up in are so intertwined with the Indian American communities. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important to how Americans understand India. Well, and I think that's probably the the best that can be said about the future of global democracy. Cooperation, as Shumit reminds us, in a way that's not controlled by governments, but actually driven by, by people. Uh, Shumit, thank you for joining us today and sharing your insights. And Zachary, thank you for your poem as always. Uh, Thank you for listening to our episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.